You guys can turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. We're continuing our series through the book of 1 Peter. Well, let me orient you guys for a moment to our passage this morning by sharing the story of a guy named Barry Marshall. He's a a doctor from Australia. He's also a professor of clinical microbiology. And back in the early 1980s, he was researching stomach ulcers. And, And at that time, it was established fact in the medical community that all ulcers were caused by stress and spicy food. But Barry had a different idea. He theorized that ulcers were actually caused by these guys, by some really nasty bacteria in your stomach, but no one would take them seriously. See, everyone was convinced that bacteria couldn't survive in the acid of the stomach, so they ridiculed the guy. They wouldn't give him the time of day. So he he began to experiment. He injected these bacteria into the stomachs of pigs, but the experiments kept failing. Year after year, he couldn't prove his theory. And so finally one day, he grabbed a Petri dish full of this bacteria, drank it himself, developed ulcers, and proved everyone wrong. (laughs) That's pretty crazy commitment to your beliefs. That's radical action, but it had the desired results. The entire medical community was convinced 20 years later he won the Nobel Prize for medicine for this research. How did Barry turn critics, turn slanderers, turn skeptics into believers? Well, not through his words, not through the strength of his argument, but through his deeds, through this incredible action. He proved to his skeptics the truth of his belief. He proved it in his own life. Well, we also have a radical belief. We have a radical message to share with the world. We believe that God, the creator, the perfect God over heaven and earth, so loves us that he sent his own son to take our sins upon himself, to die in our place. And now God offers an eternal relationship with him simply by faith. You don't have to do anything to get it. That that message we call the gospel, it sounds like foolishness to the people of this world. It sounds ridiculous to them. Evangelical Christianity is more likely to be a punchline than a serious consideration in our day and age. So how do we convince people of the truth of our message? How do we show them that the gospel is true? Well, that's Peter's subject in our passage this morning. He wants to show us how to demonstrate the beauty and validity of the gospel through our lives. Look with me, starting in verse 11 of chapter 2. This is the big idea. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Now, actually, these two verses, I think, are the big idea of the entire book of 1 Peter. This is the big idea. This is a summary. You can actually bracket it in your Bible, verses 11 and 12. I think this is the big idea of the whole book, and it centers on two words at the beginning of verse 12. Excellent behavior. I want to look at each of those words. Behavior. It's a Greek word, anastrophe. It means either behavior or conduct or one's way of life. Peter has a ton to say about our behavior in this book. He's going to use this word back in chapter 1, verse 15. He says, all of our conduct, all of our behavior is to be holy. Then in verse 18, he says, your your new way of life is different from your old way of life. It was futility. Your entire life was futility before you accepted the gospel. Then chapter 3, next week, verses 1 and 2, he'll say that the behavior of believing wives can win their unbelieving husbands to the Lord. Then chapter 3, verse 16, good conduct. Conduct by believers can can put shame upon our opponents. Peter has a ton to say about our behavior in this book. From beginning to end, he's got a ton to say about our way of life. And he wants our behavior to be 
excellent. That's the Greek word kalos. It means excellent or good or beautiful. That's what God has called us to, a life of beautiful behavior. That's the big idea of the book. God has called us to live a life of beautiful behavior. That's the life that Jesus modeled for us, a life of excellent conduct. And in these two verses, Peter tells us there's a couple things that make up excellent conduct. He tells us the first in verse 11, what excellent conduct avoids. Second in verse 12, what excellent conduct pursues. So look again at verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. Beautiful behavior abstains from fleshly lust. Those are the, the desires of our sinful flesh. They include a whole lot of things. Sexual immorality, pride, greed, jealousy, desire for revenge. All kinds of things are included in this subject. It's, it's all the desires of our sinful flesh. The desires that, that our world pursues. The desires that are common among human beings. And notice Peter wants us to abstain from those desires. He, he wants us to live lives that are distinct from the lives of this world. They are pursuing those things, those desires of the sinful flesh. We're to be different. Notice what Peter calls us in verse 11. Aliens and strangers. He's repeating what he told us at the beginning of the book. That's another one of his big ideas. We are aliens and strangers on earth. Earth is not our home. We don't belong here. We should not be like everyone else. Don't love what they love. Don't do what they do. And not simply because God tells you to abstain from these sins. Notice the end of this verse. Why should we abstain from these fleshly lusts? Because they wage war with our souls. The idea here is these things, they wage war. They destroy our lives. We've said before, sin is inherently destructive. When you give in to sexual sin, when you give in to pride, when you give in to gluttony, when you give in to greed, when you give in to these sins, you're the one who suffers. They wreak havoc in your own life. They tear you apart. Peter says, avoid these things. The life of beautiful behavior, it avoids these sins and pursues something else. Verse 12, look there again. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Excellent behavior pursues good deeds. And and Peter doesn't list what good deeds he has in mind in this verse. He'll spend the whole rest of the book doing that. Whole rest of the semester, we're going to be fleshing out what Peter means by good deeds. Here, what he wants us to see is that these are good deeds done publicly. You notice that? These aren't private good deeds. They're public good deeds. They're done in the sight of everyone so that everyone can observe them. So Peter is calling us to live lives of good deeds before a watching world. And, and why is that? Why does he want us to pursue these good deeds? Well, follow the train of thought in verse 12. Peter tells us we live in a world that will slander us. We live in a world that is going to ridicule us as followers of Jesus Christ. We see that all the time. And in the eyes of the nation in which we live, believers are thought of as simple-minded we're thought of as, as foolish for our beliefs. We're, we're branded as intolerant and hateful because of the stands that we take. Even when we give love to those we disagree with, still people vilify us just like they vilified Jesus Christ. We will face ridicule in this life because of our allegiance to Jesus Christ. So how do you overcome that ridicule? Well, not by retaliating, not by fighting back, not by ridiculing in return. No, you overcome ridicule through good deeds. Did you notice that? Our offensive weapon in this world, the way we fight back against the attacks of this world is through good deeds. You overcome evil with good. As you do that, Peter tells us, the result is conversion. 
You notice what happens in verse 12. Slanderers become those who glorify God on the day that Jesus returns. Peter has in mind, as we do these amazing good deeds in the sight of the world, those who ridicule us, those who hate us, are so blown away by these loving good deeds that we do day after day that they stand up and they wake up and they say, this message must be true, and they become believers who glorify God. That's what our good deeds can do. Just like Barry Marshall's case, this incredible deed turns slanders, turned critics into believers, so it is in our lives. When we consistently do good deeds in the eyes of the watching world so that they can see it, they take notice. Your good deeds, your lifestyle of beautiful behavior is one of the best evangelistic tools you have. How do you prove to your neighbor? How do you prove to your coworker? How do you prove to your peers in the classroom that the gospel is true? Not so much through words as through deeds. You have, to, you have to say the words. You have to tell them what they need to believe. They can't be saved otherwise. But you back up your beliefs with your life. A lifestyle of beautiful behavior. That's what wins the world for Jesus Christ. That's the big idea of the whole book of First Peter. Live beautiful lives, lives of beautiful behavior. That's what convinces skeptics of the truth and beauty of the gospel. So that's the big idea of the book, but most of the passage this morning is actually more specific. Having shared the big idea, Peter's going to spend most of the rest of the passage giving us a specific application, one particular good deed that he wants us to practice to win the world for Jesus Christ. What is that good deed? Well, uh, it's perhaps a little bit surprising. It's, It's a good deed that's not practiced so well in our day and age. It's the first word of verse 13, submit. Peter wants us to understand that one of our best tools for evangelism in this world is submission. Submission is something Peter's going to talk about often throughout the book of 1 Peter. He starts here, he's going to talk about submission of citizens to their government. Then he's going to talk about submission of slaves to masters, then wives to their husbands, that's next week, then angels to Jesus Christ, then young men to the elders of the church, that's the end of the book. From this point on, for the rest of the book, Peter has this idea of submission in mind. Submission is one of the tools by which we demonstrate the proof of the gospel. Submission, to submit in scripture. It means to place oneself under another person's authority. That's the idea here. We place ourselves under another person's authority. And Peter's going to walk through each of those relationships. He starts with our relationship to government. Look with me starting in verse 13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. A little bit of background here. What's Peter talking about? What was the government like? He says, submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution. In other words, every form of human government you're to submit to. And the the particular form of human government back then was the Roman Empire. That's, That's who Peter's talking about when he's talking about the king. He's talking about the Roman emperor. They were to submit themselves to the Roman emperor and to his governors, his appointed officials who were over them. Now, what did that submission include? A couple things included in submission. You see the first in verses 14 and 15. Submission to the government includes obedience to their laws. Notice, look at verse 14. Or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, literally criminals in Greek, and the praise of those who do right. 
in other words, those who obey the law. For such is the will of God that by doing right, in other words, obeying the law, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. God expects his people to obey the law. He desires us to obey, and for them that meant obey the laws of the Roman Empire. That was the first thing included in submission was obedience. But that's not where it ends. Second thing included in submission, look at verse 17. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Submission to government is not just obedience, it's also honor. Obedience alone is not enough. Just because you obey the laws, you're not submitting. You also need to honor or literally show respect for those in charge. For Peter's audience, that means they needed to show respect for the Roman emperor and his governors. That meant that uh, they they don't badmouth the emperor. They don't belittle him. uh, They don't ridicule him. Even if they disagree with his decisions, his policies, even if they don't like the guy, still they respect him. They show him honor by their actions and their speech. That's what Peter has in mind. Now, that's pretty easy to do if the emperor is a good guy. If human government does what God desires it to do, then submission is not hard. Notice verse 14, human government is here, God's express purpose to punish criminals and praise those who do right. When the government does that, it's not hard to submit to them. They're doing what God expects. What about when they don't? What about when government doesn't do what God expects? What about when they're the problem? What about when they're the criminals? What about when your government is immoral and corrupt? Do you still have to submit? Do you still have to obey and honor them? What's helpful to remember in answering that question, who this king was in Peter's day? It's a guy named Nero. Here's what we know about Nero. Nero's rule is often associated with tyranny and extravagance. He is known for a number of executions, including those of his mother and stepbrother, Nero was reportedly unsatisfied with his marriage to Octavia and entered into an affair with Claudia, a former slave, and then had his first wife, Octavia, executed. To consolidate his power, Nero executed a number of people in 62 and 63 AD, including his rivals, Pallas, Rubelius, and Faustus. According to Suetonius, Nero showed neither discrimination nor moderation in putting to death whomsoever he pleased. Nero built a number of gymnasiums and theaters where he staged huge gladiatorial shows. The non-Christian historian Tacitus describes Nero extensively torturing and executing Christians after the fire of 64 AD. And according to tradition, he was the emperor during the executions of both Paul and Peter in Rome. So catch the irony for a minute. Peter is telling them, submit to the guy who's going to end up killing me. That's who Peter wanted them to submit to. This guy's horrible. Nero was immoral. He was corrupt. He was a murderer. He was an awful guy. The worst politician in the United States is nothing compared to Nero. And this is who Peter told them not only to honor, but to obey. Obey him and honor him. Now, there, there is one catch here, one clarification that's important to make. What do you do if your governing authorities, like the emperor, tells you to do something that's in disobedience to God? What if you have to pick between emperor or God? What do you do? Well, look again at the passage, verse 16, the end of it. Who are we slaves of? Who do we belong to? Not the emperor, God. We're slaves of God. He is our ultimate master. It's to him that we owe ultimate allegiance. Notice verse 17. What do we give the king? honor. What do we give God? Fear. That's the higher verb, the stronger verb. God always comes first. If you have to choose between God and government, you choose God. Peter practiced that in his own life. 
Acts chapters four and five, he's told by the government, stop preaching the gospel. He responds, we must obey God rather than men. If you have to choose, you pick God. Let's not make too big a deal of this exception because probably for most of us, we're never gonna face it, or at least not anytime soon. There's no laws on the books of this country that I'm aware of that would force you to directly disobey God. And so let's, let's set that aside. For us living in our context, we must honor and obey our government. And so let, let's get really practical. Let's talk about what this means in a democracy. We, we live in a nation founded by the people for the people. We're in a democracy. What does submission look like in a democracy? Well, three things, three specific steps. Number one, submission to a democracy means that you vote. How does a democracy work? Through the voting power of its people. For the democracy to work, the people must vote. God expects you to vote. That's how the government works. You go cast your vote in a wise and educated way. According to polls in the last national election, only 40% of evangelical Christians voted. And and that's not okay. In God's eyes, voting is not an option. Voting is an expectation. That's part of how we submit ourselves to government. Now notice when you walk into the voting booth, you are still a slave of God. You need to vote in a way that pleases God. So you need to educate yourself in the issues. You need to study them and pray through them. I'll I'll let you know, it's, it's not always an easy decision. Unfortunately, the Bible doesn't mention either Republicans or Democrats. So I can't tell you how to vote. What I can tell you is that the Bible does reveal a lot of things that God cares about. And so you look at scripture and you pray through scripture and then you look at the differences between the candidates and you lay them before the Lord and you say, God, how would you have me vote? It's significant. Some of those differences are gonna be more important to God than others. You have to think through what of these differences between the parties does God care most about? I need to align myself with what he cares most about. Okay, so go before the Lord in prayer, study the issues, educate yourself as a voter and go vote. Unfortunately, We have an opportunity to apply this pretty soon, don't we? November 2nd, that's our next national election. Let me just tell you point blank, you need to vote. So that means you need to be registered to vote. Go register if you're not registered. You need to educate yourself, find out what the different candidates believe. You need to take it before the Lord and ask for his guidance. And then you need to go vote because voting is part of submission within a democracy. So go vote. Second step to submitting as a good citizen in a democracy is getting involved in the issues. Now, back in Peter's day in the Roman Empire, if you stood up and publicly proclaimed your dissatisfaction with the emperor's policies, what happened to you? You were killed. You you didn't have any political freedom back then. They, They could not voice their political opinions, but we do have that freedom. We can stand up and speak for policies we believe honor God and speak against policies we believe dishonor God, and we should do that. We should be involved. We should be involved in shaping policy however God allows us to do. We should be involved in this government. That's, that's part of submitting to the democratic process is that as slaves of God, we get involved in influencing policies in ways that are pleasing to him. Okay, but with those two steps in mind, voting and getting involved in the issues, we need to always remember and keep in front of us step number three. Submission in a democracy always includes obedience and respect. Even though we live in a democracy, still we must obey the law. We have to obey all of the laws. God's not okay with us disobeying the law unless it directly contradicts a clear command in scripture, which I don't know of any laws in America that do. You gotta obey it. That includes the painful laws like the whole pay income tax thing. 
We, we, we pay the government, not because the government is worthy, but because God is worthy. Notice verse 13 again. Why do we submit to the king? Not because the king is worthy, but for the Lord's sake. You submit out of obedience to God. Well, so it is with income taxes. You're not giving your money to the government. You're giving your money to God because he's called you to pay your taxes, to obey the governing authority. So pay every penny of your taxes. Second, obey the local laws, even the ones that seem small, laws like like speed limits. To us, that seems really small, but, but God doesn't weigh laws. They're all big to him. He cares about them. They're the law of the land. You gotta obey. So obey all the laws, even the local ones, even the ones that feel small. They're not small in God's eyes. Be a model of obedience to the law to the people around you. When the unbelieving world looks at us, they should say, man, those people really obey the law. Not because the law is necessarily worthy of their obedience, but out of obedience to God. And second, don't just obey the law. Honor your elected officials. Again, it's not just enough to obey our government. We have to honor the people who are in charge. Now, that doesn't mean you have to agree with what they do. You can strongly disagree with their policies. You can strongly disagree with their decisions. That's okay. You can voice those disagreements. But when you do, always do it in a way that is respectful and honorable to the people in charge. The president of our United States, he should have nothing but our honor and respect. Even if you strongly disagree with him and voice those disagreements, you should do it in a way that shows him nothing but honor and respect. Same for Congress, same for local officials. Always we should show them honor and respect. And as, as I work through the passage this week, man, this just really hit me. I, I feel like in, in America right now, there is such a, a context of hatred and fear in politics. We're so mad at one another and, and we're so disrespectful to our politicians. We, we need to make sure that those things don't characterize us. There is no place for hatred or fear in our view of politics. We, we shouldn't hate anyone. Even if we strongly hate their policies, don't hate the man, love him. He's a creation in the image of God. And and there's no room for fear in our politics. So many Christians who are so afraid of the direction that our country is going, look back at the passage. Who deserves our fear? Only God. Fear goes to God, not to government. If America heads off a cliff, guess what? It's okay. God is still sovereign. He's in control. You don't have to worry about it. So what if America's headed in a bad direction? God is in control. Fear God alone. Don't fear the government. So in your interactions with other people, you can strongly disagree with the policies and laws of government, but make sure that you are always a model of obedience and you are always a model of honor and respect. Give your elected officials nothing but your honor and respect, even if you disagree with them. So that's what submission means in a democracy. Submitting as a good citizen Not because our government is worthy of our submission, but because God is worthy of our submission and he's commanded it. Now, having covered submission to government, Peter moves on to a related subject. In the next verse, verse 18, he begins to talk about submission in the realm of employment, submitting as a good employee. Look with me at verse 18. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. Now, a little bit of background here. This is uh, Peter speaking into an employment situation that's very different than ours today. He's speaking to servants, literally in Greek, it's household slaves. He's talking about people who are slaves in the households of wealthy individuals. Now, before we go any further, let me quickly distinguish that kind of slavery from pre-Civil War American kind of slavery. Roman slavery was not racially based. 
You were not a slave because of your race. It was generally economics-based. If you were poor and you could not afford food, you indentured yourself to a wealthy household. You chose to become a slave so that you could eat, so that you would have a roof over your head. That's the kind of slavery Peter has in mind. And in the context of that slavery, he commands those slaves to submit to their masters in all respect. Again, slavery, the submission includes both obedience and respect. Submit to them, uh, obey them in every way, and do it out of an attitude of respect. Don't badmouth your master. Don't criticize your master. Obey him and respect him. That's what Peter has in mind here. And notice that he expects that towards both good and unreasonable masters. Whether your master is good and reasonable or your master is is literally in the Greek scolios, he's crooked, he's twisted. Whether he deserves your obedience or not, still you submit to him. Unfortunately, under Roman law, it was legal for masters to abuse their slaves. They could beat their slaves even when their slave did nothing but good to them. That was allowable. And Peter says, even in that situation, still you should submit. Don't rebel against your master. Submit to him even when you suffer injustice as a result. So Peter wants us to do, and he tells us why we should do that, verses 19 and 20. For this finds favor, if for the sake of conscience towards God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. Why should these slaves submit to cruel masters? Because when they do, it finds God's favor. Literally his reward, his blessing comes into their lives. Now notice Peter clarifies. He's not talking about when you suffer as a result of doing wrong. No, you don't get God's favor for that. He's talking about when you do right. When you obey God, when you honor God in every way and you suffer as a result, God rewards you in the midst of that. He will bless you. He will take care of you. He will bring grace into your life as a result. Now, let's get practical. What does this look like in our lives? Fortunately, none of us are slaves. Now, there may be days at your job when you feel like a slave, but you are not. You are not a slave. Two big differences between our employment situation and theirs. Number one, we've got rights. They didn't. You can't be physically abused by your boss. If he physically abuses you, you have legal recourse. You can take him to the police. That's that's a big thing. We have rights they didn't. Second big difference, if we don't like our job, we can leave. They couldn't. They couldn't quit. We can. We can give our two weeks notice and we can leave if we have a really bad boss. Okay, but those two changes notwithstanding, still the principle applies to us. Until the day that you pull out that I quit card, still you have to obey still you have to respect your boss. The same principle applies to us unless our rights are violated or unless we pull out the I quit card. Now, same for you here who are students. Maybe you have a professor who is just an unreasonable guy. Horrible class, you hate the class. Well, guess what? You have an option. You can cue drop the class. But until you pull the cue drop card, you're expected to submit. You're expected to obey that horrible professor and you're expected to honor and respect him, not to speak badly of him. Okay, so let's, let's get really practical for a moment. What does it look like in our context to submit as a good employee? Well, number one, you do what your boss tells you to do. You do what your boss tells you to do, and you do it well. You do all that he tells you to do, even if you disagree with it. Now, hopefully your boss has, has created a way where you can express your concerns, but if he's not convinced by your concerns, if he tells you to go do it anyways, you got to do it. God leaves no room for us to disobey our bosses. Unless he directly contradicts something in scripture, you got to obey. 
You got to do what your boss tells you to do. Second part of submission as a good employee. Do not undermine your boss. You need to recognize that God's sovereignty over the universe extends to your office building. Your boss is your boss under the sovereignty of God. He's there not necessarily because he's worthy, but because God has chosen to allow him to be your boss. And as a result, you need to respect his authority. Don't go undermine it. Don't go behind his back and try to make him look bad. Don't try to break him down. No, build him up. Respect that authority because God put it there. Don't undermine your boss. Third, do not complain about your boss. This is a really hard one. This is where it's tough. If you've got a horrible boss, you've got a horrible professor, it is human nature to complain about that. Now, there are hopefully legitimate ways to deal with complaints and concerns. What are those? Typically, it's go to God and go to your boss. (laughs) Typically, that's the legitimate way to deal with concerns and complaints we have. Go to God, go to our boss. But it's not okay to go to our coworkers. It's not okay to go to our peers. It's not okay to go to other people and complain about your boss. It's not okay to be around the water cooler and badmouth your boss. It's not okay to go to lunch together and talk about how much you hate your boss and how unreasonable he is. God's not okay with that. You can talk to your boss about that. You can't talk to your coworkers about that. Your speech must glorify God by honoring your boss or by honoring your professor. Now, this is a really, really hard one. Some of us will find ourselves in a situation, you're at lunch with your coworkers or with your peers in your class, and they start bad-mouthing your professor or your boss. They start talking bad about your boss. What do you do? Well, you got to put a stop to it. You got to say, guys, because of my commitment to the Lord, because of my allegiance to him, I I can't participate in this discussion. So either we we have to stop complaining about our boss or, or I have to leave. Take a stand. That's what God desires of you, that you would be a light for the gospel through radical submission to your boss. Now, this is tough. I want to say I'm, I'm right in the middle of this struggle. When I was a student here at A&M, uh, I had a class with a bunch of my friends, and, and we had this professor who was like the definition of unreasonable. He was a really, really mean guy. I think he hated us. It was really a tough class. We, we really disliked the class, and so every time we got together for homework, what did we do? We complained. For like an hour, we complained about how horrible our professor was, and I look back at that, and I say, man, I was wrong doesn't matter what my professor did. I'm called to submit not because he's worthy, but because God is worthy. I had no place complaining about him. That was not right. This is tough. This is really hard to do. But God is calling us to practice radical submission to our bosses by not complaining. Fourth and finally, how do we practice this good submission? Stay longer than you want to. We do have the freedom to quit. But what happens when you quit? But when you quit from under a bad boss, you lose your opportunity to be a light to the world of radical submission. Now, that's what we naturally want to do, human beings, when we're in a difficult situation. We want to bail. We want to jump ship. It's natural for us to want to run. But when you run, you can't be a light. You can only be a light if you stay in the middle of that difficult situation and reflect the beauty of the gospel to all those around. So if you're in a hard class, if you're in a hard employment situation, I would encourage you, if you can, pray about this, please stay longer than you want to. Because maybe that difficult class or difficult job is God's gift to you. It's his opportunity for you to be able to be an incredible light in that environment for the truth of the gospel. That's how we prove the gospel. Again, this is hard stuff. It's hard to submit to government. It's hard to submit to our bosses, even when they're good. It's even harder when they're bad. 
How do we do it? Well, Peter wants to end this chapter by giving us some motivation. He knows it's hard, so he he motivates our submission. Look with me starting in verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his steps, who committed no sin nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. What Peter is doing here is he is motivating our submission when it's difficult. He's motivating us to submit when submission is painful. And he does so by reminding us of three truths. First truth he reminds us of, remember, this is what God called you to do. When God called you out of darkness and into light, when he called you to salvation, he wasn't just calling you so you get to go to heaven when you die. He was calling you to become a light in this world by obeying him when things are tough. He called you to bear up under that suffering. He called you to submit even when it's difficult so that you can be a light in this world, so that you can prove the truth and beauty of the gospel through your deeds. Don't run away from difficulty. You're here on this life to do difficult things for the glory of God. That's why you're still here. So honor God. Obey this call upon your life by submitting even when it's tough. Second thing Peter reminds us of, Christ himself submitted to the most unjust suffering ever. Notice verse 22. Who committed no sin nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Peter's point is this. Out of all the human beings who have ever lived, Jesus Christ deserved nothing but praise from those in authority. If, if Jesus was living under a government that was working properly, back to verse 14, if the government of first century Judea was doing what it should have done, what should they have done to Jesus? They should have crowned the guy because he did nothing but good. He should have received their praise. But instead, because it was a broken government, they vilified him, they abused him, they beat him. And how did Jesus respond? Well, not by retaliating, not by fighting back, but by submitting. Jesus continued in submission to Pilate, to the Romans, to the Sanhedrin. He continued in that submission, not because he had to. Remember, he's God. He could have pulled the God card out of his pocket at any time, wiped out the Romans, wiped out the Sanhedrin, but he never did. He stayed in submission to them. And do you notice in verse 23, Peter focuses on his speech. When Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he was beaten, he did not threaten back against them. He focuses on on his speech because I think Peter knows in the realm of submission, the hardest part for us is not our actions, it's our speech. We are so tempted to complain about those in authority over us. We're so tempted to badmouth them behind their back. Peter's reminding us, be like Jesus. When you have a horrible boss, when you have a horrible government, when you have a horrible professor, you know what you should do with your mouth? You should keep it closed. If you have nothing good to say, then don't say anything at all. Do what Jesus did. Be silent. Don't dishonor them in your speech. If Jesus can submit to the worst ever abuse, then we can submit to whatever we face. No bad boss, no corrupt politician will ever put you in any kind of suffering like what Jesus suffered. Finally, third thing that Peter reminds us of, Jesus did it for us. He suffered this unprecedented abuse. He suffered this unprecedented injustice on our behalf. He did it for us. He took our sins upon himself and went to the cross for us so that we might live to righteousness, so that we might be healed. 
He did it for us. That's the good news of the gospel. We're separated from God because of our sins. We cannot earn our way back to him. There's no amount of good deeds that can make us righteous in God's eyes. We can't fix our sin problem. So God sent his own son to fix it for us. He sent Jesus Christ to take all of our sin upon himself, to willingly go to the cross and take our punishment in our place, die in our place. And then he raised him from the dead and now he offers to all human beings the free gift of salvation if we will simply believe. That's the good news of the gospel. You can have a relationship with God now and forever if you simply believe because Jesus paid the price of all your sins. That's the gospel that we celebrate this morning and we have the privilege this morning of celebrating that as a, as a body, as a communion. We get to celebrate communion together. Communion is our opportunity to remember and reflect upon what Jesus did on our behalf. That he literally sacrificed his body and blood for us. That's what we're celebrating in communion. So I want to invite you, you don't have to be a member of our church to celebrate communion with us. If you're a believer, if you have chosen at some point in time to believe the message I just shared, that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead, then we'd love to have you celebrate communion with us. Now in preparation for that, Colin's going to play back through a hymn and and the guys are going to pass out the elements. This is a good time for all of us to go before the Lord with, with some of the verses here at the end of the chapter and reflect on what Jesus did for us. It's a good chance for us to remember what exactly did Jesus suffer on our behalf? Let me put one of those verses up for you. I challenge you during this time while the elements are passed, read back over this verse a couple times. Think through what it means. Each phrase, what did Jesus do for you? Let's prepare our hearts to celebrate communion by reflecting upon the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Lord Jesus, this morning, We want to pause and remember what you have done for us. Thank you that you turned your body over to abuse and to crucifixion on our behalf. Thank you that you poured out your blood so that we might be cleansed, so that we might be forgiven and have new life. Lord Jesus, you deserve nothing but praise. You deserve nothing but glory, and yet you willingly suffered and died for us. Thank you so much for that. I pray that for all of us here that we would grow in our appreciation of that, that you would help us, Lord, please fight against our tendency to take that news for granted. Please help us to be aware of it, Lord, every day. Help us to be conscious of what Jesus has done for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son. We thank you for his example of submission. We pray that we would follow it, Lord. We pray that we would be models of incredible, perfect, extreme obedience to the laws of the land, of respect for our elected officials. We pray that we would be examples of obedience and honor to those who are in charge of us, our bosses, our professors. Lord, that we would give them nothing but honor and respect and obedience. Please, Father, help us to be lights in this world through radical submission. I pray that we would honor you. I pray that we would do the hard things so that we might be lights to the world. I pray that you would empower us through your spirit to submit. Thank you for all that you've done. I pray that as we go from here, your spirit would freely convict us would lead us to change, would lead us to be more like your son. It's in his name that we gratefully pray. Amen.